I've taken it very loosely, the brief. So uh, we'll just have to see how it plays out. It'll be fine, Stephen. Okay, this is, great. This is, so many people do it, really. Some people just do it on the fly. You know, just Look, off the top of their heads. Homework. He's done it. Look at that. Preparation. Big red ticks everywhere. The festival. There's really nothing quite like it. How are you guys doing? When you pick the right acts to see, it's musical nirvana. So if given the power of the festival gods to have absolutely any act you desire, alive or not, playing in that perfect spot at the perfect moment, who would you choose? I think we're going to walk in and we're going to hear the clash. Oh, Mike, so now it's going off, yeah. Green Day. Simon and Garfunkel. What? Radiohead. Rick, you're the greatest promoter of all time. <laughs> That's exactly what I want. I just want to be held. <laughs> Behold, the greatest day of our lives. Welcome to the lineup, you beautiful spirits of Eden. When I discovered Throbbing Gristle, to me, that was real punk. Yeah, yeah. That idea of music as a weapon, discharging a cattle prod into the audience to make them feel even more uncomfortable, or looking for the frequency that would make people simultaneously, you know, shit, shit themselves. themselves. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. This is a stretching of a point, but I think we have a sort of mutual acquaintance because I, oh, yeah. I'm, I more know his drummer than him, but Stephen Rothery, you've done some work with Steve, Stephen over the years, I think, haven't you? Uh, Stephen's a very, very good friend of mine. Uh, in fact, this is... Uh, we won't be able to fit this into the format, unfortunately, but it's a good story anyway. <laughs> I was at the first ever... Marillion concert. Unwittingly, at the age of 11 years old, I went, at the age of 11 years old, I went to my local venue in Berkhamsted, near Hemel Hempstead, where I was born, where I was brought up, and to see the local punk group, the Chilton Volcanoes, who I was told that night were opening for a new band called Marilyn. So me and my friends, who were all big fans of this band, Chilton Volcanoes, you know, radical young hipsters like we were, we go see the local punk band. And it turns out they were opening for Marillion at their first ever show. And I saw it and I loved it because I'd never seen anything like it at that age. And years later, of course, well, it was a couple of years later, they got their record deal and suddenly Marillion burst onto the scene. I'm like, I saw that band when I was like, and then I, and then years later again, I mentioned to Steve, I was at this gig and he said, that was our first ever gig. That's incredible. uh, Crazy. And we've been good friends ever since. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to do a little intro and then we'll just crack on. Hmm. What do you do with a talent that over three decades has, they've done it all from trance and ambient and industrial to pretty pop, from heavy prog to drum and bass, a multi-Grammy-nommed songwriter, singer, multi-instrumentalist, record producer and podcast host, for God's sake, who scored huge success as founder member, lead singer and guitarist of Demigod's Porcupine Tree, a man with six solo albums under his belt, innumerable side projects and other bands, a man who's worked with everyone from Pendulum to Yoko Ono and Elton John, who's also managed to find time to knock out a memoir called Limited Edition of One. I think the only sensible thing to do with them is ask them to curate a festival. So here we are to do that. It's Stephen Wilson. Hello. 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 Yes, I have curated my festival. It is It is the last thing that was on my bucket list, I must say, my fancy festival. Yeah. And here you are. You've had me do it. Amazing. He's just held it up, dear listener, uh, yeah. his homework to the screen, and you, you're not party to that. But it's, no. there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of work done there. You've shown you're working out. It was hard. It was hard. Listen, it's hard. I was told I could only pick five bands. Now I've picked twelve. Okay. <laughs> not only, not only have I picked twelve, I've split them. This is what a nerd I am. I've split them into four themed oh, days. God. What have we come across here? And I've got a compare for each day as well. God. How about that? I mean. This is going to be a two and a half hour podcast, isn't it? Well, there there is that possibility. We're yes. going to have to move. We're going to have to move fast here. Well, I mean, you've completely ridden roughshod over the format, anyway, which is supposed to yeah. be five bands living or dead. So Sorry I might, about that. I might have to boil it down a little bit. But first things first, would you say you as a as a punter, are you an enthusiastic festival goer or, or not? No, I hate them. Yeah. I hate them. Getting that I, vibe, I, actually. I, I, um, I love the idea of it, but actually the, the experience is horrendous. Yeah. 
I like my comforts. But, yes, but now then, but think about this, right? I'm the festival genie, so it could be anything yeah. you like. It could be Airstream caravans. You could sleep at night in a sort of, in a festooned treehouse or an extremely uh, okay. luxurious yurt, you know, being, being waited upon. It doesn't have to be a mucky two-man tent. I see. Okay. So, all right. The, the fantasy version, obviously, is a lot more appealing than the reality I've experienced. I mean, even even having played festivals, been on the other side of the curtain, as it were, it's not the most it's not the most fun thing I've done as a musician. We've done. I think Porcupine Tree did download three times, and every single time we seem to be on after Rose Tattoo in the rain. <laughs> That's like a, uh, that's a song. That's a country yeah. song, isn't it? Rose tattoo <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> yeah. So uh, every time it was a pretty grim experience. But you know, maybe I've just had a bad experience, and you know, I just haven't had the fortunate experiences. I mean, the the, the idea of my fancy festival. I love my fancy festival. Yeah. yeah. Particularly if I could be living in in luxury, the way you've, you've yeah. painted that picture, that sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, that's what we'll do. And yeah. the thing is, part of the game is that we have to place it somewhere in, in the world, like in this fancy festival. You currently, mm. I'm speaking to you, and you're in Tel Aviv. Are you currently sort of living there at the minute, or what's the, what's the game plan? No. So my wife is Israeli. And uh, so we've, because of lockdown, we haven't been able to visit her family for the best part of the last two and a half years. So this is our first time oh. out here to spend time with her family. Yeah. So I spend a fair bit of time here by virtue of my my wife. Yeah. And I love this place. The Tel Aviv's are wonderful. I don't know if you've ever been here. No. It is a wonderful city. Yeah. Very vibey. I'm sure I remember reading somewhere. Correct me if I'm wrong. That you you said something about you were sort of a reserved English person for quite a long time. It took you quite a long time to come out of your shell. And that Tel Aviv is is like the antithesis of that English reserve. Would you say that's about right? Yeah, I mean, Israeli people are, are in some ways are the polar opposite of English. They're very forward. They're very. I mean, what I describe myself in relation to my wife is she's like the sine wave that oscillates around my flat line. So I'm very even tempered, and she, like a lot of Israeli people, she's very fiery. So she's either completely up or completely down. And th- there is something about that that I find. Uh, some some English people I know find Israeli people uh, too forward and, and almost rude, because they'll tell you exactly what they think. They won't they won't observe the you know the sort of polite etiquette of of English society at all. And I found that incredibly refreshing when I came here. I think having been brought up in a family where we were very reserved, very emotionally constipated, all of those British cliches, uh, cliches because they're largely true. To come to Israel and see the other side of the coin, uh, and then to be married to to my wife, I, I feel like that kind of completed me in a way. If that makes sense, yeah. 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 Would you place your fantasy festival there, or where in the world would it be? It could be anywhere, mate. That's a good question. Um, I do love Tel Aviv. I mean, there is a wonderful, most magical place I've ever been to, I think, and this is where I choose to have my festival, is in the, is in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Now, uh, logistically, of course, that would be a, a, probably a non-starter, but this is a fantasy, right? So yeah. I, I would say we would have the festival in the Atacama Desert Great. in Chile. And you've been there, you've visited that place. Yes, yeah, a magical, incredible place, yeah. Because yeah. the thing is, I mean, I'm not that, I'm not that well-travelled, Stephen, you know. I mean, I'm only 50, I've got it all to do. But um, I, you say Atacama Desert, and I imagine this kind of, this uh, desert wasteland, but I'm presuming that that's not really the whole story. Yeah. So it's probably not a million miles away from what you imagine, actually. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only real landmarks in the Atacama Desert that I visited were this lost city, this kind of um, deserted city, and the the big observatories, the you know the Paranel and and um, Alma, yeah. uh, the two the two big astronomical centres, and I was very fortunate to be able to go oh. and visit those two. Yeah, oh, incredible! And those completely crystal clear skies at night, and the Absolutely. Milky Way ahead of you. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, we we would ensure that requisite water supplies were on tap, of course, for the punters to make sure nobody died. Um, and he did, he did, it sounds like my kind of idea of, of heaven as well, because I imagine the quiet. I imagine the, like you said, an, an element of desolation and sort of peace must must befall the place. So that's great until we turn up with our festival. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we do want to name it as well, but we we started this convention where we sort of sit on that till the end of the the festival, oh, so we can okay. let that percolate. Unless you've got one now. We no, I haven't. Per- right. I we'll, haven't. we'll come back to that at the end. So. Okay. Uh, having had a little look at the, the page and the, the multifarious acts that are on it, the first part of the day is the dawn chorus, right? What's it like in the desert at sort of seven o'clock in the morning? I bet it's quite quite chilly. 
especially if it's in Chile. Yes, it is, because you've got no cloud cover. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, mean, I spent some time actually up, up, up on the mountain in the observatory. And of course, the temperature difference between the ground, the desert level, and being right up at the top of the mountain where the, where the telescopes are, is it's like 20, 30 degrees Celsius difference. So it's like snowing on the mountain while it's just like scorching hot down below. So we could have the festival, you know, we could have it halfway up the mountain, yeah, yeah. you know, give people a little bit of air, a little bit, or, you know, stage at the bottom, stage at the top. I don't know. There's all sorts of possibilities there because you've literally got all these different climates going on simultaneously, one at the top of the mountain, one at the bottom of the mountain. Good God. I mean, this is, I mean, thank God it's a, uh, a fantasy because a, it is a logistical issue, isn't it? It's a logistical idea. Well, before we get on to who we're going to put on, first let's just ask a little bit more about you because you you know your musical upbringing was the was in the 80s i guess mm. but is it true to say that you weren't turned on by a lot of the that era's sounds originally you you were sort of the 67 to 77 was your favored era to begin with would you say well, only by virtue, it's not, in, it's not the whole story. I think by virtue of the fact that my parents listened to music from that era, that was the first music I was ever really excited about. But actually, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. That's when I discovered pop music. And so my music was actually the music of the early 80s. A lot of post-punk music was what I was listening to. So, you know, my favourite bands were bands like Stranglers, XTC, Joy Division, you know, A Certain Ratio, um, yes. Magazine, White. That, that was my music. That was the music that all the kids at school were listening to and I was listening to as well. And also the, 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 the Scar, the Specials, Madness, that was happening. The day I arrived at high school, secondary school, that was pretty much the music that everyone was talking about. So that was my music. But at the same time, um, I was very lucky. My parents had, my dad was a big fan of things like Dark Side of the Moon and my mum was a big fan of things like the Donna Summer records, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. So I was hearing that kind of music too. And my best friend, Mark, his big brother was about 10 years older than us. And he had this collection of records that kind of opened up a whole different world to us that was about 10 years previous. Now, as I'm sure you know, there's nothing more dated than the music of about 10 years before. Mm, mm. When you get to about 20, when it's about 20 yes. years old, it kind of comes back. That's true, yeah. But when it's 10 years old, no one wants to talk about it. So when, when we were growing up, 1980, 81, no one, no one was talking about bands like Hawkwind, Camel, yeah. you know. So, so we untrue. discovered... Exactly. It just wasn't. So we discovered these bands through, through Stuart, his big brother's record collection. And so I found myself in this position where I was having these two kind of simultaneous educations, one which was contemporary and one which was retrospective by virtue of, of this record collection, also my parents' days. And I grew up with this kind of notion that, that all music somehow was, was amazing, was magical. And I didn't understand this notion of the musical tribe at mm. all. And it, and it came as a shock to me when I realised that day I went to secondary school and I realised that there was the sort of two-tone tribe, the Jam Paul Weller tribe, the Gary Newman New Romantic. And it was a real shock to me because I thought it was all amazing. Yeah. This is all fantastic. Why do I have to come down on one, you know, progressive rock or, or Scar or whatever? It was all amazing to me. So you're kind of, you were sort of an early adopter of this non-denominational, this Catholic with a small C taste, weren't you? Because I think that now, when I listen to newer bands, I, I listen to somebody like Alt-J or Bombay Bicycle Club and stuff, and I think it's interesting that the the sound is is quite difficult to pin down. You can't say that it's mm. blues-based or you can't say that it's pop-based. It's like you can tell that these are kids that have grown up with with things like Spotify, so they've got this Catholic taste. They listen to a bit of everything. And you, I guess, were doing that in the early 80s by... Didn't of your parents and your friends and stuff? I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I started about two or three bands almost simultaneously. When I became a professional musician, I, I started about two or three projects simultaneously, and Porcupine Tree was one of those. And Porcupine Tree was obviously more committed to exploring this kind of, uh, you know, 60s, 70s vibe that I was really into. And that was the one that took off. So in a way, and I, I will confess, I have a little bit of a chip, chip on my shoulder about this, that in a way came to define me. Yeah. And I've kind of, and part of the reason for writing the book was to kind of disabuse people of that notion in a way that I am, 
you know, a champion for this very one, to me, what seems like quite a narrow uh, spectrum of musical influences. I mean, I think, you know, we live in an era now where a lot of the hip-hop artists are what you, the kind of crate digger mentality, where yeah. they'll go and just pick up records and they'll sample everything yeah. from Tangerine Dream to The Carpenters. And yeah. it, it, to them, it's just all good music. And I think I had that mentality. I had that mentality from the beginning, yeah. We've got to touch on your... Because your parents are obviously a good and big influence musically in, in this. And your dad was, was he an audio engineer? Or, uh, he was certainly in the sound realm, wasn't he? Because is it true he made you a, a sequencer that, that worked in sort of 9-8 time, like a nine-step sequencer? Yeah, my dad, my dad, funny enough, my dad worked for a, a series of companies when I was young that, that have a sort of magical resonance to me. He worked for Pi, he worked for Decca, and I think of those as these incredibly legendary record labels. But he wasn't working in the, in the sort of record side, he was working in the electronics departments and developing technologies and things. And he, I mean, he was like a, the archetypal mad professor genius, because we're talking about an era when you couldn't just go on the internet and discover a schematic or a circuit diagram to build something. So if I said to him, Dad, do you hear that sound on that record? Can you make a machine that will do that for me? <laughs> he would go and figure it out. That's absolutely amazing. But he, because he wasn't a musician, he didn't know. So, like, he built me a sequencer, and he didn't know that... He wasn't a musician. He didn't sort of acknowledge that most music is in 4-4 time. So he could just... He could afford to buy nine... Um, components. So he bought nine components and made me a nine-step sequencer. So everything I wrote on that comp- on that little sequencer had to be in the trickiest of time signatures. So again, you know, another reason why I perhaps have my dad to blame or to, to yeah, credit yeah. for for pushing me towards the sort of more complex prog. You know, everything was in nine, That's but through you know, not through design, just because he didn't really understand that side of it. He sort of strikes me as a magic Alex figure, almost. Your dad, you know, that guy, the the, the sort of uh, yes. Greek guy yeah. who did all the Beatles stuff. The Beatles, yeah, fantastic that, yeah. Is everybody ready yet? We good? Let's go. Let the day begin. Right, we've we've had a we've had a little thought about this. I think that, and perhaps this is the progressive element within your your soul, Stephen. You've come to this very enthusiastic with so many bands. So what we're going to do is at every stage, you can put you can plot in like a day's worth of bands. Okay, so we're in the Atacama Desert. It's the first part of the festival. Who are the first bands that you're going to put on? Well, we could do we could do it as a one day, but with four different stages. Okay, so I'm right. gonna I'm gonna swiftly Brilliant. move through my my. So my first my first stage is themed the space stage. Yes, so you see, I'm getting conceptual already. Great. The space stage, and my compare for this day is the great the late great Peter Cook. Oh, what a genius! Yeah, okay. So I'm going to start off my space stage with a performance of some great, serious 20th century classical works by Karlheinz Stockhausen. Now, the reason why I've picked him is because Karlheinz Stockhausen, as you probably know, I'm very much into the world of surround sound. Mm. Now, Karlheinz Stockhausen was working in surround sound in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And he wrote these two pieces, which I would like to hear performed at this festival. We get, I'll get off on a serious note, called Gruppen and Carrie, which he wrote for multiple orchestras positioned around the audience. How about that? So Carrie, for example, is four orchestras and four choirs, each positioned in a separate corner of the auditorium. And he wrote this music which would enable the choir and the orchestras to pass chords around the audience. So one guy, one orchestra would start playing it and then the other one would pick it up and then the other would... So imagine that. Surround sound. God. Surround sound. In the Atacama Desert. In the Atacama Desert. But actually not processed surround sound, real surround sound being passed around you by real musicians. So I'm going to start the evening off with a bit of culture. <laughs> Performance of Carre and Gruppen by Karlheinz Stockhausen in the surround sound sphere. That's a bit spacey. Now, first, then next, we move on to the ultimate space rock, space rock group of all time, Hawkwind. Yeah, yeah. At the point that they were in their space ritual vibe. So they had Bob Calvert, they had Michael Moorcock writing lyrics, and they were the ultimate space rock. Stacey are dancing for yeah. them. The ultimate cosmic rock band. So we've got a performance by Hawkwind, okay? So you're already, yeah, so you get, your mind's already been blown, okay? Completely blown. It's probably only lunchtime now. It's only lunchtime. And then my headliner on the space stage, and this is where it gets very fantastical, I want Pink Floyd circa 1967 to 1970 only with yeah. 
Sid Farah and David Gilmore, <gasps> because I can. Oh. And a guest appearance by David Bowie performing CMA oh, Play. Which, stop it. Which he did record. This is only the first, the first day. I know. Well, you wait till you get to my second day. Right. David, because Bowie did record CMA Play yeah. on his pinups, on cover pin-ups. albums. So, okay. So that's my fantasy. Yeah. Incredible. Lots to unpack. First of all, I'm glad we've come to Floyd now because, you know, it's it seems obvious to say it, but they, they're obviously writ large in, in your music in your musical DNA. Didn't you mm. have like like a sort of Floyd poster back when you were really young or something? I, I'm sure most people did actually. Well, I had the poster. I had the poster from The Dark Side of the Moon, which my dad had, and I think I nicked the poster and put it on my wall, yeah. yeah. I remember reading a story when you were about six, your mum and dad bought each other albums for mm. Christmas. Mm. And one, your dad bought mum Dark Side of the Moon, your mum bought dad the, uh, the Donna Summer one, or maybe the other way around. I think it, my dad bought my mum Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer, which is the classic George Amaroda, yeah. the, the breakthrough George Amaroda produced record. And my mum bought my dad Dark Side of the Moon, yeah. So I would hear those two records pretty much in rotation, almost brainwashing me yeah. uh, for the best part of several months. And I do still, I mean, I, I, I've said this before, I'll say it again here, I do still say that I think for that very reason, those two albums are essentially fundamental to my whole musical yeah. DNA. My love of great groove, great dance music, uh, you know, rep- more repetitive groove-based music, and my love of conceptual rock, the idea of the album as a musical journey, a musical continuum. And those two things, those two strands, are fundamental to pretty much everything I've done, yeah. I think. Have you ever come, have you ever met the Floyd guys, the lads. Did you ever meet David Bowie? I must ask these questions. They're reductive, but I need to know. I never met David Bowie. I have met David. David Gilmore's been to a couple of my shows, uh, very flatteringly. Um, I've had the opportunity to meet Roger Waters and decided against it. Uh, yes, um, I think his reputation precedes him. I don't want to be... You know, it's that, it's that classic thing where you almost don't want to be disillusioned yeah. by... And, and I think if anyone is going to let me down, it could potentially be him. Uh, because, I lo- you know, so much of his work I absolutely adore. And I think they are the classic case. You know, that's Lennon, that Lennon and McCartney thing. They are the classic example of yeah. uh, stronger, stronger together than they were apart. They're perfect kind of yin and yang thing going on there. So I've met David and I've met Nick. Uh, Rick, unfortunately, passed away before I got to meet him. Um, and of course, Sid, likewise, no one ever got to meet him, did they? But so uh, they are my favourite group, no question. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because some people are more obsessed with the Sid era and don't think that much of the 70s onwards, others the other way around. Weirdly, I'm sort of a, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here onwards guy and less sort of enamoured with the with the Sid era, which is just my, you know, my particular special weirdness. But what is it about the, the two different eras that, wouldn't it be great, you're right, to get them both on at the same time, though? I think, I think, I, I mean, I love everything about Floyd. I love the whole career trajectory, the way they developed from the more kind of psychedelic, improvised, the more kind of Dardaist aspects of what they did, if you like, to the more kind of structured conceptual rock music. But these days I find more going back to listen to the early material because I think it was freer. I've, I've, you know, I've also heard Dark Side of the Moon and Wish You Were Here too much yeah, now in my yeah. life. I mean, you get, you get to a point where, and I will still hold up, I will still hold up Dark Side of the Moon as an example of the album that is so perfect. There's nothing you could do to make it better. And, but I've heard it so many times. I don't need to hear it anymore. Whereas I find there's still stuff I can get from from the more kind of um, uh, the earlier sort yeah. of freer improvised music. There's a magic to it. There's the magic of curiosity and searching, and a sense that they are discovering what they're going to be during that period. And I just think Sid was this kind of mad, you know, kind of natural. I mean, he was so charismatic. Uh, and his lyrics were so unique, and his songwriting was so unique. And I still think Piper of the Gates Dawn is the definitive mm. psychedelic pop record, much more so than Sgt. Pepper, actually. Yeah, me. yeah, okay. I mean, gosh, so we've had, we've got the space stage. Incidentally, yeah. oh, they keep saying rock music's dead all the time, don't they? And they've been saying it pretty much since its inception. But do you think there's a little bit of truth to that? I remember, again sort of reading that you you were saying that if you're a kid now you almost like rock music's something you have to seek out it's not in the just in the water it's more pop and r&b would you do mm. you think that that threatens the position of rock or do you think it's 
makes it more interesting for rock musicians to try and cut through? That's a good question. Uh, you know, my view on this is that rock music had a pretty good run. And if you think, if you look back at history, you see that actually rock music um, kind of usurped jazz music in the mid 20th century. Rock music kind of took yeah. over from jazz, which had been the popular mainstream music of the first half of that century. And I think now what we've seen in the 21st century is that urban music has done the same thing that rock music did to jazz. And that's the way music develops and that's the way music evolves. And I think we just have to accept that. But of course, those of us that grew up with rock music can't help but feel a little bit sad and nostalgic about that. My problem, I think, with rock music is that it failed to reinvent itself for the first time every every decade it would reinvent itself if you have, if you think about rock and roll psychedelia um punk rock grunge whatever you, whatever was happening at that time there was always something every 10 years or so mm. that was kind of reinventing and making rock fresh again and for whatever reason that didn't happen post mm. 21st century and so inevitably what happens is rock music gets pushed aside by the really innovative fresh yeah. sounds of hip-hop r&b urban music and that's happened and i think that's fair enough that's that's the way it should yeah. be but rock music the answer to the other half of your question is i think there is good stuff happening in rock music but it's no longer in the mainstream yeah you have to, you have to find you have it to look it's, for it's, it. it's it's become the cult it's become what jazz was in the second half of the 20th century that's very interesting yeah I never thought of it like that. It's, yeah, it's it's all cycles, isn't it? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Here we go. One, two. Okay, the space stage roars on, and you know, as the as the darkness falls in the Atacama Desert, you can just imagine that incredible Floyd headliner, Sid and David on the same stage with, mm. and then Bowie comes on and then you can see the Milky Way. It's ridiculous. That's all happening fine. But what about the second stage? So the second stage I call my spirit stage, okay? Now, my compare for the spirit stage is Mr. Clinton Baptiste, of course, who else? <laughs> who else could present the spirit stage? That's okay. incredible. Yeah, I, I actually, I actually know Clinton a little bit, you know. Alex, yeah, yeah, Clinton, yeah, he's a, he's fant- I'm a big Clinton fan, yeah. So we've got Clinton Baptiste, medium clairvoyant, uh, presenting the Spirit Stage. Now, my opening act on the Spirit Stage is Mr. Nick Drake. Now, the funny thing is, no one remembers ever seeing Nick Drake play live. Uh, I don't think he played live very much, and even when he did, he was kind of nondescript. No one noticed him. So, but now, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, Nick Drake has become. You know, one of the great names to drop if you're anyone that considers themselves to be in the singer-songwriter genre. So I would have Nick Drake performing with full orchestra, the Five Leaves Left and Bright, mm. all that material, those beautiful Harry Robinson orchestral arrangements. So I'll have Nick doing a beautiful acoustic guitar set with orchestra backing him to open the evening. Then we moved on to some scorched earth jazz fusion, courtesy of Mr. Miles Davis, about 1972 era, but with Brian Eno guesting on VCS3 synthesizer. I'm having my cake and eating it here, as you can tell. You are. Yeah. So we have some fantastic jazz improv circa early 70s, when I think, for me, that's the era for jazz rock. I mean, just phenomenal. Scorched earth stuff. But my headliner for the night, this is where I'm really having my cake and eating it, Talk Talk, two of my favourite albums that Talk Talk made, they never performed live because Mark Hollis decided he didn't like playing live. And then he went on to make these two incredible records, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stops, two of the most beautifully spiritual, innovative, you know, you could argue that those records kick-started the whole post-rock movement, you know. Never performed live. So I'm going to entice Mark Hollis, who's still alive, obviously, in my fantasy world. I'm going to entice Mark Hollis with the promise of the perfect setting for him to realise his two late career masterpieces with whatever band lineup he wants in a live performance oh. in the Atacama Desert, oh. just as midnight rolls around. You know what you're going to have to do as well? You're going to have to invite Guy Garvey of Elbow. 
because he is he's one a big of the, fan, he's isn't just it? obsessed with those, especially those two records, which which are I can imagine the rainbow of of that. Uh, Yes. Spirit of Eden. Uh, just the, I remember uh, about this time, about three years ago, for some reason, it was a beautiful warm day, and I was I was working on the radio, but it was a it was Good Friday, and I was walking into town. And it was very quiet because it was Good Friday, and I was one of the only people working. I thought I've got an hour to myself here. I'm going to put Spirit of Eden on, walk into town, and then I went and had a little bit of tapas and a glass of wine. And sat there. And, it, you know, sometimes a moment and the music at the same time can come together and make this magical mm. thing. And I'll always think about, basically, I always think I always think about tapas and booze when I hear that record. Mm. So you've got me. I completely agree with that. I just think that the right environment and, you know, there's so much space and silence in that music. And I just imagine the audience being so hushed and you can hear a pin drop, you know, that kind of atmosphere. And, you know, it's very warm in the desert at night, but maybe there's a very light breeze blowing through. It's just, it, if, if everything kind of converged in the right way, I think it would be the most magical, transcendent festival experience you could possibly have. What is it about your brain, do you think? Because I get the impression, especially, I mean, anybody who, uh, and I love the Grammys for this because they've got a category for everything. And, and I think you were nominated for best mm. 5.1 surround sound mix. But there's something cinematic or something stereophonic going on in your mind, isn't there? Is it, do you think that if Beethoven was living in, in this time, that he might be using technology and mix and, uh, you know, the placement of music in a particular way like you do. You think that there's a connection there? Is that is that the composer's mind? That... Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's, that's why I had Stockhausen opening my yeah. first, you know, my first stage, because this is a guy that in the 50s, you know, long before any rock musicians were, were doing so, was experimenting with the idea of immersive music, music that comes from more than one direction at the mm. same time. And of course, they couldn't do it with recorded music at that time, but they could do it in in, in the concert hall. Um, so absolutely, you know, and I think there are there are some composers working now, people like Max Richter, for example, and Nils Fromm, who kind of, they're interesting, I call them the post-Radiohead series composers, they're, or post-Aphex twin series composers. They're, they're kind of classical, they're in that tradition of classical composer, but they've grown up also hearing the music, uh, you know, from Aphex twin and Radiohead, and, and the, so they incorporate electronica into their yeah. music as well. And I think absolutely these are the, these are the kind of modern Beethovens of our, of our yeah. generation. What about but, you know, his reputation precedes him as just uh, this cerebral person who makes you think out of the box. And that was that's why people used to employ and still do employ him to help him help them make records. Mm. What do you think for you in, in the position that you're in? What does he mean to you? Why is what he does so important? Well, because I've never considered myself to be, I've never wanted to be a musician, or, or let me clarify that, I've never wanted to be a virtuoso musician. Mm. I can't read music, I, I will never pick up a guitar unless there's a reason for me to do so. And I say that because a lot of the quote-unquote proper guitar players I know practice every day, two, three, four, they have a love affair with their instrument. I've never been particularly excited by the possibilities of a particular instrument, what I have been excited about is this idea of sound design, mm. of creating um, sounds, textures, musical worlds. And Eno is kind of the archetype for that, isn't he? Because this is a guy that, that couldn't play, just turned up in the middle of Roxy Music with this box that didn't even have a keyboard on it. And he's just turning knobs and sort of spewing this sort of sonic chaos over the top of it. And that's so exciting. That, to me, that was really exciting. You know, um, that is really exciting. They call, they call you know, the sort of ultimate blue sky sort of guy. They're yeah. The guy that you bring into your production when you want someone to think out of the box. To think in, to think in a way that isn't necessarily within the prescribed parameters of being a musician or writing a song almost like that kind of art school mentality. And I think I've picked up on a lot of that. I, I like the idea of being someone who makes records rather than plays music, yeah. if, if you know what I mean by that distinction. And that, and that can involve anything. You know, in fact, we'll, we'll, my next day, we'll come onto this subject a bit more. It's, yeah, it's colours, isn't it? In music, I suppose, and yeah. painting like that. And I've just got to quickly pick up on this because, again, I couldn't believe it, hearing you say that you don't, think of yourself primarily as a guitar player that you you ended up sort of by default playing 
at lead guitar in Porcupine Tree, but you didn't really think of yourself as a lead guitarist. And, and like you just said, I think we have I have proper guitarists on on my solo records and stuff. Mm. Do you really believe that? Because you are a you, you're incredibly accomplished. I'm okay. I'm okay. I mean, I like I like being the worst musician in all the bands <laughs> I play with, and that's and that's true of Porcupine Tree, and it's been true of all my solo bands. And I, and I, you know, again, I, I look to someone like Frank Zappa, for example, who who again. Or constantly surrounded himself. I mean, he was a pretty incredible guitar player himself, but constantly surrounded himself with these incredible virtuosos. But he's the guy with yeah. the ideas. They can't make great music without him. Yeah. He's the author. He's the guy with this kind of mad imagination to create the musician and the music and the compositions. And I, I kind of see myself, perhaps rather flatteringly, in that kind of uh, tradition. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And you've worked with Chad Wackerman, I think, haven't you? Who worked with Zappa? You yes, know, yeah, I have. Ridiculous yeah, yeah. musician as well. Um, Absolutely. All right then. So we've got we've had we've got the space stage going on. Uh, these are all, I guess, concurrent. Uh, the spirit stage. Uh, I'm getting a word, Clinton Baptiste, in between, uh, just causing absolute <laughs> mayhem and chaos. So what about stage three? So stage three, I've got to have a bit of noise, ugly noise here, okay, because this is another big part of my musical DNA is industrial music. Uh, so I am, my third stage is the industry stage, which is going to be compared by Mr. Stuart Lee. I don't know why, it just seems to fit <laughs> yeah, somehow, because yeah. Stuart, I think Stuart likes a lot of noisy music and stuff too. Okay. He does, doesn't he? So my opening act is um, a, a very obscure French act who I'm fascinated with called Vomir. Mm-hmm. Now... Vomir is a proponent of what's called harsh noise wall music, which is pure slabs of non-changing noise. And I find it fascinating. It's almost like performance art. He performs with a black bag over his head, a bin bag over his head, and he doesn't, he just literally stands there for the whole time while this constant noise comes out of his speakers. And his manifesto is, get this, no ideas, no changes, no development, no entertainment, no remorse. That's nihilistic beyond belief, isn't it? Completely. It's. I mean, it's the. It's music taken to the extreme, wh- whereby it cannot go any yeah. further. It redu- It's so reductive. It reduces music to a single, constant noise that requires no interaction at all yeah. with the musician, with the performer. I fucking love that. <laughs> anyway, so we're gonna have a we're gonna have a half hour vomir harsh noise wall to start the start the stage. Then we're gonna have swans come on. But Swans, you talk about nihilistic music, Swans circa 1984 when they were just coming out and they were making this, the most nihilistic negative music I've ever heard, I think, was what Michael Jairou was doing with Swans around the mid-80s. Albums like Cop uh, and Holy Money and, and Greed, just brutal, pounding, industrial, but obviously with guitars, bass and drums, so it still had kind of allegiance to rock. I love that. But my headline act would be the band that kind of got me into industrial music, and in fact, a lot of people into industrial music, and even coined the phrase industrial music, which is the great throbbing gristle. Which to me, you know, it's interesting because I did grow up in the slipstream of punk, and I loved a lot of the post-punk groups, but punk itself always was too reductive for me. So when I discovered throbbing gristle, to me, that was real punk music, you know. Very radical, again, as much to do with the world of performance art as it was to do with the world of, of pop music. Uh, you know, with Cozy Fanny Tutti being also, you know, engaged in the world of pornography and Genesis Peerage having all these weird ideas, you know, like discharging a cattle prod into the audience to make them feel even more uncomfortable or looking for the frequency that would make people simultaneously, you know, shit, shit themselves. themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that idea of music as a weapon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, music is something which confronts the audience, which almost riles the audience. I mean, in a way, that's what punk was trying to be. But too often it became this kind of Mickey Mouse version of that. It was too reductive. But then you have a band like Throbbing Gristle, which is truly confrontational, truly radical. To me, when I discovered that, that that was my punk. You know, I could see the kind of punk aesthetic in in a band. Because, again, they couldn't play. They couldn't, apart from Chris Carter, the keyboard player, they had very little musical talent at all. And again, it's that Eno thing. It doesn't matter. It's about the ideas. It's the attitude. And it is, yeah. you're right, a lot of punk music essentially became, it, it was really like a, 
you know, it might be a Who retread from 10 years before or a blues rock Absolutely. change or something. You know, I, I guess some of the lyrics might be confrontational, but but this stuff, I, I, what is it about that kind of noise? Because it's, I, I remember about 25 years ago longer, I was briefly in my mate's band called Pop Christ. They were quite offensive. And um, they supported a band in Liverpool. We were playing with them and they were called Maisie Fade. I think John Peel played them a few times. It's the nearest I can get to what you're describing. They, they made such an an unbelievable noise that I remember my girlfriend at the time, uh, I remember looking round at her and she was sitting in the corner of the room crying. It had wow. reduced her to tears because she was in a sort of, in pain. <laughs> and it was like, I was really impressed by that. It was like, like you're saying, it's like, wow they're like that's music that it moves you but not in the you're expecting to be moved by music to tears or yes you, yeah. to, to dance or yeah. to, because it's joyful what is it about this that appeals to to, to you and to people so much do you, do you think that dark undertone i can't yeah i think firstly i think on a musical level people under people under tend to end, underestimate the importance of the aesthetic of noise in pop music now if you look at a band like nine inch nails for example i'm a big nine inch nails fan uh, there is so much of the aesthetics of industrial culture and noise in, I mean, albeit in a much more kind of um, crafted way. But we respond a lot, in, you know, in music, we respond a lot also to negative energy, negative things. So, for example, one of the, one of the sort of ways I try to explain to people why I like noise, Japanese noise music and an artist like Vomir, for example, is that... If you imagine you're watching a horror movie or a very dark sort of psychological thriller, a lot of the time when you're watching that movie, your emotions are being manipulated by the sound design. Yeah. Very often, which is pure noise. Now, if you look at a David Lynch, like Eraserhead, for example, the soundtrack to Eraserhead is just this industrial noise the whole time. Yeah. Same with a, with a movie like Elephant Man, which is otherwise quite a sentimental movie. But a lot of the time, the soundtrack is just this... And it really gives you a sense of foreboding and it completely enhances the kind of unease. Um, yeah. Or the last scene in The Shining where Jack, where Jack Nicholson's running through the snow and you get that atonal wall mm. of orchestral noise. And it's so powerful. And I think people are affected by that very deeply in connection with the images. But sometimes I find it odd that if you play them that kind of music out of context, they'll say, well, it's just noise, that's not music. <laughs> But then I say, but all music is just noise. Yes. That's what music is. Yeah. Now, dear listener, being the oral disruptor that he is, at this point in the proceedings, Stephen's own sound had a wobble. Um, I'm the best of us, even Sonic Architects. So our backup sound had to kick in. So that's just in case you're listening, 5.1 surround sound in your amphitheater and you'd notice the change in your ears. Okay, back to the action. And in fact, a lot of the time, the best music, the music we respond to the most, is not the most sort of, you know, sophisticated. Um, and there is a lot of, of, you know, Nirvana, that pure anger, particularly on that last Nirvana album in Utero, you know, there's a lot of rage and pain and anger. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. Oh, that's true. It's, it's like Hendrix or something. If you, I, I'm obsessed with, and always have been, Jimi Hendrix live records. Because I just look, firstly, because he can, he's got this innate ability to control extreme volume, but he also can use it as a fucking weapon. He, yeah. can, he can decimate the first 10 rows with a note. Um, and it's the same kind, it's coming from the same place, isn't it? Like you say, in, in utero, produced by great Steve proponent Alvini, of noise. Yeah, yeah you know, yes, Big Black yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. Yeah. It's that kind of, you're right. It's that, it's like going on a roller coaster, isn't it? You, you sort of know you're not going to die. But mm. it gives you your brain the impression that you're going to die, and that's why you enjoy it. it. So it seems to come from the same place in a way. And I think there's also bands that have kind of used volume, your sheer volume. My Bloody Valentine. Yeah. I remember Deep Purple. You know, or oh, the Who being described as the loudest yeah. band. So there's almost this badge of honour to be louder than everyone, because there is something about the sheer visceral kind of power of volume and noise. And I think sometimes people overlook how much of a component, a building block that is. And I've always responded that. And also to the lo-fi aspects of industrial music. I love 
lo-fi sounds and you hear that in bands like Portishead that that love of you know lo-fi mono mono stuff being in mono rather than <laughs> glorious stereo so in that respect it's almost I'm a, I'm a you know I'm nothing if not a contradiction in terms yeah. on the one hand I love the kind of audiophile immersive surround sound and then I love Throbbing Gristle recording their album on a little you know cassette player in mono <laughs> it sounds sick it sounds sicker for it you know well, you're more effective in the space of a song, sometimes you you know will 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 move from all those different tones, like industrial to sort of a lovely sort of bluesy sweetness, you know, like same asylum as before or something. Or, mm. But when you first hear a song, is it the sound that grabs you or the lyrics or you know how do you enjoy music? I don't know. I mean, I think the, the simple answer to that question is I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for something that I've not heard before, which sounds like a rather general, rather glib statement to make. But I think I'm always looking, I always was, even when I was a kid and going to my local library and taking out records just because the sleeve looked interesting or, you know, the, the, the lineup of the instruments looked strange in some way. And that was enough for me to be curious about that record. I think I've always been looking for something that sounds it. And I say that because... I think most people, and I don't, I don't mean this to sound holier than thou. It probably does anyway, but I'll say it anyway. I think most people are always looking for the familiar yeah. from the music they want. And that's why a lot of music for me that does, you know, it seems to me a lot of the music that does really well these days instantly to me sounds like yeah. a throwback to something I already know, whether it's, you know, wet leg, whatever, yeah. the, you know, the, these days that sound reminding me of various post-punk groups I think are better, you know, because I'm old and that's what old people say, isn't it? Oh, just, um, but I'm always looking for something that sounds like nothing I've heard before. And that becomes increasingly yeah. hard, obviously, the older you get, that to get that same buzz. Of, wow, I don't know what the fuck that is, but, it, but I'm curious because I can't immediately relate it to something I know already. Yeah, I think uh, so. That's the only answer I can give to a question. It's, it reminds me a bit of like what Radiohead did at that point in their career about twenty or so years ago, wasn't it? Where I mean, I guess that they were listening to a lot of AFX Twin and stuff, but there was mm. right, we're going to really fuck things up here, and people are expecting, you know, the bend, and we're going to do this instead, you know, and it's that's the same kind of journey, isn't it? I will ask quickly before we move on to the final stage. Um, you know, you've got the chops and the hooks, and you can write a a perfect pop song that people can walk away singing and you have done numerous times. You can write the, you know, the, the, the incredible riff, you know, you can do all these things. Yet you, you're on a different trajectory to somebody like Matt Bellamy or Josh Homme or somebody like that, who in my mind are a bit more like straight, look, we're at the front, we're rock stars. Do you think that you've gone on that trajectory subconsciously to get away from the idea of being the big rock star front man, or do you think that's just a different, another thing that that's why it's happened? Uh, well, I think that would flatter me in the sense that would imply I have the charisma to be that anyway. I don't think I do. Uh, you know, I'm a nerd, you know, I'm a nerd. What can I tell you? Um, I, I don't aspire to, even though, you know, I, I did have posters of Prince on my wall in the eighties too. And to me, he was the ultimate pop star still is the ultimate charismatic pop star. And I don't have any of that charisma. I think I will always do something which, which would shoot myself in the foot. And part of that is that I do apparently seem to have that need to constantly reinvent myself and confront the expectations of my audience, which is a dangerous game yeah. to play. Now, I call it in my book, I call it the impossible tightrope, to walk this tightrope between constantly changing and still being able to maintain an audience and a career as a professional musician. Because you are with every, I mean, my last record, The Future Bites, virtually no guitars on it. Very a very tweezed electronic pop record, albeit still very ambitious, but that's not what my fans were expecting. And so I, I could, I think we can describe it as a divisive record. Uh, half my fans loved it. Half my fans were like, you know, where's that prog rock? You know, so and part of me takes a sort of perverse delight in upsetting those people too. So I'm, I'm very bloody minded because in a way, I think the reason I take a perverse delight in that is because to get that response tells me that I have yeah. reinvented myself and I have moved on. And again, it, when I go back and I look at the artists that I really admire, the Mark Hollises, the Tom Yorks, the David Bowies, they are the ones 
that did constantly confront the expectations of the audience and continue to do so in the case of of radio and Neil Young as well, yeah. you know, going from doing a country record to a grunge record to an electro electronic record. And I think those people are the ones I personally hold up in the most high esteem yeah. of all. Miles Davis, of course, being another great example. Oh, God. And of course, we all go. It all goes back to that Bob Dylan Judas thing, doesn't yes. it? Uh, where he where he went electric. And I and and I think he was another one that took perverse delight Incredible. in. in pissing off the the stick in the muds. And I think the part of my job in a way is to upset those people. Um, so I don't know if that answers your yeah. question or not, but but I think that's probably put paid to my potential to be a, a mainstream pop star. In the whole lexicon of popular music, my favourite fable is Dylan going on tour with the band in 1965 and just, and people paying for 18 months or two years to watch him on tour around the world just to tell him what a wanker they thought he was. Amazing. You know, and him just standing up there every single night, we're going to do it again, guys. Wanker! Shut Incredible. up! We hate this! I'm still doing it. It's, yeah. it's the, it just gives me energy to think that somebody's got the capability to do that. Well, really that, that's, that, I mean, what I love about that is it's the opposite of being careerist, isn't it? Yeah. It's... It's, I have to follow the path of my, you know, pretentious as it may sound, I have to follow the news where it takes me. And that careerism is always, I think I can sniff it out in artists Mm. and it turns me off them. What do the fans want? Let's give it to them. And the moment I sense that in an artist, I'm not interested. And again, I've realized that makes me different to most music listeners. Most consumers kind of want their artists. The familiarity. Essentially, more of the same. Mm. Yeah, over and over again. Just give, just give me that buzz that I first. It'll never be the same as that first buzz I had, but at least it'll just give me enough of that feeling that I first got when I fell in love with that band to keep me listening. Yeah, and that I can sense that a mile off. I think in in a lot of the artists that I probably wouldn't respect that much for it. How are you doing out there? Are you ready for the next act of the day? People, make some noise! So that brings us on to the final stage, which, final which, stage, which yes. I guess is the legend stage, where we, we're going to have Lionel Richie and Dolly Parton. And we're not quite. Okay, what's, not what, co- what is it? Number four. Well, you you only gave me five, and I'm giving you twelve. So I've already <laughs> pushed the end. I've pushed my luck as far as I can. You know. No, I could have easily had a stage with Abba and the Carpenters. Oh, and all, yeah. You know, I would have loved to that. But I'm sure you've had guests that have had all those people on before. So I'm going yeah. to try and be a little bit more unique. My last stage is what I call the eccentrics Ooh. stage. Okay, which is presented by Alan Partridge, of course, the great Steve Coogan <laughs> with his greatest creation. I'm going to start the evening with with Richard D. James, Aphex Twin, a great hero, turned me on to a whole world of electronic music in the early 90s. Artists like Square Pusher, Boys of Canada, Orteca, Plastic Man, all, all the warp artists. I completely fell in love with that whole world, and I still think he's the king of that. And it's interesting because this follows on, to, it follows on ex- from exactly what we were talking about. He's an example of an artist that does not apparently give a fuck what <laughs> is expected of him. Does not give a fuck what's expected of him. He might release some new music one day. He might not. He doesn't care if he feels he wants to. <laughs> so I would have a set with Aphex Twin with the Chris, with the great Chris Cunningham visuals, you know, I think yeah, yeah. That, that we all remember from those Come to Daddy window liquor videos. Then I would have a set by the greatest cult band of all time, in my opinion, which is Tim Smith's Cardiacs. <sighs> I don't know if you're familiar with Cardiacs. Yeah, yeah. I must say that my mate Paul Banks, bass player of the legendary Mosque, is the biggest Cardiacs fan in the world. And if I didn't say that out loud, he would hate me for it. So he's with you on this. Well, that's good to know. I've heard a few people make similar claims. I have to. I think they're one of those bands that people are either obsessed with or they have no interest in at mm. all. They don't. You can't. You can't be a casual sort of. Ah, oh, quite like Cardiacs. <laughs> yeah. You either. You either love them and are obsessive about them, or you just don't get them at yeah. all. And I think most people are probably in the latter category. But that just makes the ones in the former category even more evangelistic <laughs> about them. And I am one of those people. I think Tim Smith is is a genius. Was a genius. Sadly. He's left us now, passed away now. But, but what an extraordinary! I mean, we talked earlier about bands that you just cannot understand 
you cannot figure out the provenance. You yeah. cannot understand where they come from. What were their influences? It's just cardiac. She listens to me and says, it's insane. What is, what is this? Yeah. I don't understand this, but there's enough there that makes you curious and fascinated to go back and listen again. Yeah. And then two or three late, two or three times later, it's like, okay, now I get it. This is genius. Yeah. It's like progressive rock. It's like punk rock. It's like music called vaudeville. It's comedy, but it's also quite deep in a way too. And again, it doesn't seem to give a shit whether people will like it. I mean, they're a band that almost went to great lengths to accentuate everything that was ugly and impenetrable about them. Yeah. And I admire that, you know, and I will admire that forever about, about Cardiacs and Tim Smith. So yeah, we'd have a set by Cardiacs. And then my final headline act, Prince was going to do it, but he's pulled out at the last minute. And so we have the great King Crimson, but King, but King Crimson circa 1969, because Ooh. I've heard from a few people that were around at that time. For example, Steve Hackett talks to me about this. He says that going to see King Crimson in 1969 at the Marquee was the most extraordinary experience because no one had ever seen a band like that before and he talks it, it seems like quite a banal thing but he talks about the way they would come on stage every other band at that time whether it was hendrix or zeppelin or whoever they'd wander on they'd start tuning up twang twang, twang. <laughs> hello how are you doing twang 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 and he said not for crimson crimson came on in complete silence in the dark no tuning and then just suddenly this juggernaut of sound would hit you and he said something even as simple as that was like jaw dropping no one else did that They'd come on and then suddenly they'd be into 21st century schizoid man, that opening mm -hmm. riff. And I just, and I can't imagine what it must have been like to have been hit by that. I mean, just the level of ambition in the music itself, you know, this kind of weird fusion of the moody blues, but, yeah. but like with jazz and, and, you know, vir musical virtuosity that no one had kind of come across before, certainly in the world of rock music and that big Mellotron sound and the saxophones and, and these great songs um, and just the sheer presence of that band, the sheer power and presence of that band seems to have been life-changing oh. for, for a lot of musicians I've spoken to. So I would love to kind of imagine to myself what that oh, would have been like. It's so powerful. Yeah. Fripp, as a guitar player, is uh, is frightening. Yeah. I, I sort of name-drop playing, know Brian Eno relatively well and have spoke to him about, you know, you, you end up asking really silly questions like you know what was it like recording like with david bowie in berlin but you know it's right. so much <laughs> so much pissing about it seems you know just sitting around with bowie and fripp and just doing peter cook and dudley moore impersonations and and, yes. and the, the 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 thing about a lot of musicians that i think non-musicians don't understand is there's a lot of comedy in touring and, and in recording because mm. it's, it's just people sitting around dicking around a lot of the time isn't it and waiting but you're right there's some great theater in king crimson in 1969 isn't there that is absent in other parts of the rock circle really uh, from what i understand it really changed a lot of people almost overnight in the way that they understood that rock music could be something more than just four guys ambling on and playing a few blues you know blues legs or whatever just the theatricality of it the fact you know what it's funny one of the things obviously i get associated with most and we kind of touched on this earlier is this idea of progressive rock this notion of progressive rock what mm. is progressive rock what makes something progressive and to me there are two main things firstly the idea of of an album as a musical journey you can you can dispense with the idea of 10 three-minute pop songs you can construct something much more kind of almost cinematic across two sides of a record. That's one thing. And the other thing I think is this idea of musical hybrids, that you can draw in all sorts of kinds of music and fuse them together. Yeah. And there's a great example, King Crimson. And it's funny, that first wave of progressive rock bands, they all get lumped together now, the Jethro Tulls, the King Crimson, the Pink Floyds, the Yeses, but they're all completely different. You know, yeah. uh, a band like King Crimson, there's a very strong jazz Kind of component. Emerson, Lake and Palmer, it's all about the classical music component. Pink Floyd is very much blues music, a spacey, space rock, all very, very different. So that idea, I think, that progressive rock was about taking musics that had never been put together before and fusing them into something new. And I think King Crimson are a perfect example of that, yeah. certainly at that time, yeah. I also like about prog rock going, fucking hell, 
I've got like nine bits of songs. Um, I'm just going to stick them all together. I, I, I like that as well, you know, to be to be so simpler about it. I love that bit. Oh, that's what we'll do. We'll have a suite. Although, to be fair, that's been responsible for a lot of very, very bad music, you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I've done it myself, you know, but I talk about this in my book. There's one Porcupine Tree album called The Incident where the main track is like 50 minutes long and actually... I can admit it now, it was because I hadn't written any really good songs. <laughs> I just had all these bits and I sort of stuck because you know, wow man, never mind, never mind the, the quality, feel the compositional structural, <laughs> you know. So I think that that's one of the I, that can be one of the bad things about yeah. progressive rock. I've got these nine bits, none of which are very good, but you know what? If I stick them all together, they will seem really important in a way. Uh anyway, that's the less story. The, the less than the sum of their parts. Exactly. One, two. In a minute, I'm going to go through this epic uh, four-stage experience, is I guess what we'll call it. Uh, Stephen Wilson, typical of the man and, and the progressive mind, he's completely retooled the lineup today and left the old the, the old format in tatters on the floor. Sorry um, about that. But I just want to quickly run through a couple more questions, like quick ones. First of all, carbohydrates. What are we feeding people? You're a vegetarian. What's the best food to, to give people in the Atacama Desert when they're having all these unbelievable experiences? Well, I, actually, funnily enough, I'm almost vegan. I say almost vegan. My wife will, will will make the point that you can't be almost vegan. By definition, you're not vegan if you're almost vegan. But she is vegan. So we, we have a lot of incredible vegan food. She makes a lot of incredible vegan food. And one of the things that I think constantly these days people are surprised by, meat eaters particularly, is the, the beyond meat stuff. Yeah. And I haven't tasted meat for 20 years, but this is what they tell me. It's almost impossible to tell the difference now. The, the excuses people have for eating meat, and again, I don't want to get on my soapbox about this now, yeah. but the excuses people have for eating meat, wanting to eat meat, are running out. Mm. They are getting less and less all the time. Beyond meat, you cannot tell me that that doesn't satisfy yeah. your craving for that mm. taste. So I think we're going to have a strong affinity. We're going to have sponsorship the festival's going to be sponsored by Beyond Meat. There's going to be a strong push towards getting people to experience yeah. the Beyond Meat experience. This is great. And it's going to say, help to save the planet as well, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's that. I have to ask about, ridiculous that I've left it this late, Porcupine Tree, after a, a very long, over a decade-long hiatus, people are very excited about the fact that you're back together. You've got a new record coming out quite soon, I'm saying in yeah, June. June. What's changed to in in the water? To is it was it just time to get back together? I guess you hadn't like really fallen out. I know that you wanted to to experience just playing with different people and stuff. What was the special source that brought it back together so nicely? I think we'd we'd started writing way way back. Just in, almost in the slipstream of the previous album, we kind of started developing material. So it wasn't like there wasn't the intention at some point to do another record, but um, uh, the years just seemed to roll by and then lockdown came around. And I mm. think it's fair to say that if it hadn't been for lockdown, we might not have knuckled down and finished this record. But lockdown gave me, along with writing the book and, and the pod, starting the podcast, gave me the opportunity to do things I'd been talking about doing for a long time, but had never got around to because of this constant touring album cycle and I think the Porcupine Tree record was one of the benef beneficiaries of that we were able to knuckle down and finish the record and I think it was very important to us that if we came back with another record and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier that it wouldn't simply be more of the same that there would be a sense of rebirth and uh, a different approach to the sound, albeit, you know, it has recognizably the porcupine tree DNA. It's a very epic, ambitious record. And it's it's just a thrill for me to be able to play again with, yeah. with Gavin and Richards. Really That's, amazing. And it, I, I know this, again, this is me sounding like I'm just asking a dumb question, but I'm obsessed with the guitar. And I, one of my bugbears about modern rock music is that they're just starting a fucking guitar solos so could I, will, will, will there be a few choice solos from Stephen Wilson's PRS on there or whatever weapon of choice that you're going to have? There's a few. I mean, I'm not a great soloist, but I, you know, I I'm, know. but I'm a great believer in play one note and break somebody's heart rather than play 20 yeah. and just, just go completely over the top of their head, you know? So I play some, I play some, some 
you know, solos in my in my own uh, my own way. Yeah, uh, but they're not PRS solos these days. My 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 weapon of choice mm-hmm. is um, is my Telecaster, my three oh. Tele. Yeah. Oh, oh my go god! Oh, nerdy there. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad I got a bit of guitar nerd at the end. That's yeah, beautiful yeah. to know. Um, I'll look. I'll keep my ear out for that. And finally, we need to name this ridiculous experience. Oh, what are we going to call it? I mean, Natalie suggested the Space Spirit Industry Eccentrics Festival. Well, I was looking at that. I, I, this, yeah, this a bit. It's a bit um, cumbersome, isn't it? Space Spirit Industry sounds pretty good. Space Spirit Industry, um, but you've also given it a name there. You've just called it this ridiculous festival. How about that as a name for the festival? <laughs> Great. Okay, that's this, what we're going to call the, it. The 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 this. It's a bit cumbersome too. The this ridiculous festival in the Atacama Desert. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. The yeah. Space Stage, compare Peter Cook. The Spirit Stage with Clinton Baptiste. The Industrial Stage with Stuart Lee. The, the Eccentric Stage with Alan Partridge. And, and these unbelievable, from Stockhausen to Nick Drake and Miles Davis and Talk Talk to Vermeer to Swans to Throbbing Gristle to the Cardiacs and King Crimson. I mean, how we're going to get around it all, I don't know, but it's a fantasy, so we will. Exactly. Uh, remember to bring your jacket because it does get nippy in the Atacama Desert after about 10pm at night. The book's out now, limited edition of one. Yes. Porcupine Tree's next record is going to be out in June. Can't wait. I think it's the twenty. I think it's the twenty fourth of June. Yeah, twenty fourth okay. of June. That's good. Just after my fiftieth. And then we're and then we're on. To, we're also on to between September and November. We've only got one UK show, which is a big one though. It's at Wembley, oh. which I think is almost sold out. So get your tickets, folks. Could be the Do last it. ever chance. Yeah. I can, I can see. I can see Wembley out of my window here. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, just down the road for me. So there that's no problem for me. It's It's been an, a fantastic experience, Stephen, to talk to you. Uh, nobody's taken it to quite that level before, so you've set the bar very high for the next person on the lineup. Stephen Wilson, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Apologies for leaving your, your format in tatters. <laughs> it's great. I love it. Thank you.